You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche. This is Sarah. This is Chris. Deacon Basil. And Shree. Today we're talking, uh, you know, it's that time of year again. It is uh, late October, and today we're going to be talking about... <laughs> the dog is going to be... And Sydney's here. And Sydney's here, but this is a time where kind of the concept of grief, death, loss, mourning, bereavement in general, and, and, and these kind of things are, is where the church particularly focuses in on them. We're close to All Saints Day, All Saints All Souls Day, Dia yeah. de los Muertos. Yeah, yeah, so it really is. Plus... Um, I mean, I don't know if this was your guys' experience in the last couple of weeks, but, like, the the world, like, became fall immediately. Like, oh, yeah. it was like, Love it. it was like in Colorado here, it was like, <laughs> it was like this it. beautiful, beautiful summer, and then all of a sudden, okay. all the trees have changed and everything's... All of a all sudden, the it was winter. Yeah, it, it was winter. winter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it actually, snowed. it's supposed to snow, yeah, in... In great detail. Um, oh, in, in great detail. Um, so, you know, one of the things about, about grief, I mean, I have a little bit of a background working in grief counseling. Um, I was a, uh, I worked at a hospice um, through my internship working with grief. And Chris, um, I know that you were, worked in this area with too. With kids and their, fa- kids who had life-limiting illness in their family. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's kind of a little bit of a background that we, we both have, but grief I would say is something present in all aspects of psychotherapy in some degree or not or another mm-hmm. all the time um, that very often I start um, therapy by I mean not, not, not the first question that I have but <laughs> very often I'll sit down and ask about lo- uh, death losses within the last 20 years yeah. and just kind of talk in those terms and talk about what that looks like and and that can be a death loss of a grandparent and that could be the death loss of, a, of an unborn unborn baby in a miscarriage or that could be you know anywhere in between and those can be really significant sometimes also people agree like in a broader extended analogous sense i hear therapists talk about grief with respect to the things that clients are attached to so sometimes you'll have to grieve like you know if you have to give up a career for your family mm-hmm. or if you have mm-hmm. to give up even in addictions work you know it's like okay yeah. you have to grieve that or you know if you come to terms with the fact that like you know, the person you you married 40 years ago wasn't the person yeah. you really wanted in your life. You have to grieve that. So you're grieving yeah. these concepts, you're grieving yeah. these, um, like, conceptual notions that aren't, like, concrete. Yeah, I, I would say some of the biggest works I've done in relation to grief have been around divorce. Okay. And it's, like, a constant, there's, like, a new thing that's continuing to come at them over and over again that they have to grieve. They notice it's not just the grief of a relationship, but then it's all kinds of different social units, you know, lifestyle sometimes, safety, security, other relationships. That's a real insight because, and, and something that I remember talking about quite a lot with, with grief clients is that it's, you're not just grieving the, grieving the person, that person has left a yeah. hole. Or a marriage, mm-hmm. that marriage has left a hole. Yeah. Right. Or that career has left a hole that has then that, that has so much more connected to it. Yeah. 
And and that's the same for anybody you lose in life. It's it's one thing after another yeah. that keeps coming at you. And the temptation is to immediately fill the hole, which you can do with the fast, frenetic pace of life, entertainment, substance abuse, whatever it is. But for me, grieving entails like sitting in that emptiness for a mm-hmm. little while. I think one of the things that we mentioned that we really wanted to talk, spend a little bit of time about was the way in which we as a culture mm. grieve. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this, I was in a grief class in, in grad school, there was this really kind of difficult conversation that we had where we all wanted to say that we as a culture do not grieve well, but nobody wanted to really come right out and say it. Nobody wanted to say that... that that we as a culture were failing in some way. Yeah. I think there were a lot of reasons for that, and Chris, you're, th- you're thinking of them, I'm sure. But um, we as a culture really struggled in that regard because there's this attitude that no matter who died, you should be over it, which I don't even know what that means. I don't know how you're over a right. death. Like work, work days give, uh, workplaces give you two days off. Two days off, yeah. For a parent mm. or a child. Or a spouse. And one day for like a grandparent or other non-immediate family member. And we have no like rituals in the West. And that Mm -hmm. is grief. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading a book on psychology of adolescence. And it's like, not to get us too off topic, but like there's another instance where like the non-Western world is replete with initiation rituals. Mm -hmm. Um, The non-Western world is replete with post-traumatic healing rituals. The non-Western world is replete with childbirth rituals. And grief rituals are a big part of our our human uh, heritage, I'll say. But here in the modern West, we've kind of moved beyond that. We've gotten to this advanced, highly progressive stage where we can actually jump right back in and work a 9 to 5 the day after our parents die, which is actually horrific. It's, It's absolutely unrealistic. And I was even reading about... Um, some grief traditions in New Zealand, actually. Mm. And I can't remember how long it is, but before the funeral, they actually, the body of the loved one stays in the house, in the casket, mm. for, the, for the family to get used to the idea that that person is no longer alive. Wow. And it's not just, they're just all automatically gone from their sight. Mm. I, I, I mean, I think there are other cultures as well that oh, kind yeah. of do similar things. I mean, the wake. Um, mm-hmm. The Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish kind of Shiva. Shiva. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sitting Shiva. Sitting yeah. with the corpse, like never leaving the corpse alone like for the first 24 hours and then burying it right away. Wow. Um, right, because that's the thing you hear so often. Like, someone in my life died. It's so weird. I can't believe they're gone. Right. They were just with me. And you don't get to experience that, like, um, that, like, somatosensory feeling of, like, now I understand they're not with me anymore. Right. It's just like, they're taken from me. Boom. They're gone. Yeah. Their body is Mm -hmm. gone from your sight. And maybe the last time you saw them was alive, and the last, next time you saw them was, like, in the ground. That's right. There's, it's, it's completely... Mm-hmm. When you're lucky if you get that. I mean, that's sort yeah. of a vestige of a ritual, the fact that we still visit tombstones. Right. You know, we're lucky to have that. I, I have a lot of family overseas, and so for me, I haven't even been able to do that sure. always. When, yeah. they, when my extended family overseas, when someone dies, you know, I, I say a prayer. Right. <laughs> I can't visit their tombstone. I remember when, when we were at the hospice, we would talk about how, um, how death 
was, you know, bereavement and death, it was the trauma that all of us were going to experience, mm -hmm. that someone close to us was going to die. That's the kind of trauma that we all share in. Mm -hmm. right. That, you know, maybe I'm not going to experience a trauma of going to war or anything else, but I am going to experience someone close to me dying. That's right. And that we actually respond to death, no matter what, whether it's a traumatic or, or even, even a non-traumatic death, we can respond in similar ways um, as we would to other traumatic situations. Yeah, and so much of it is our um, experience of the loss. Like, for me, one thing that really bothers me about death is when I've had relatives die, I'm always left with this feeling of like, I wish I'd gotten to know them better. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. that, I, honestly, that you know, to steer us in a theological direction, kind of off the bat here, because we're not just the psyche podcast, <laughs> it really is a, one of the great uh, joys of our faith that we actually have a hope of seeing people again. From my perspective, I don't know what you all think. Well, I mean, I obviously <laughs> do think that we have a hope in seeing them again. But I also think, you know, we can have a relationship with them even while we're here, here on earth. I mean, that's the entire concept of the communion of the saints. That's right, that's yeah. right. And I think, um, and I'm not saying that this is what you were saying, but I think we can say that, that even now I can have a relationship with that person. I remember C.S. Lewis kind of talks about this, is that uh, in, his, in his great book, A Grief Observed, and Cherie, you're going to quote this at some point, I'm yeah. sure, but um, he talks about how death with his wife, this was after the death of his wife, and it was that, that my marriage has changed as like a different movement within a dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that there's a different characteristic to it, but it is still the same, you know, it, yeah. it's still a dance all the same. So in the church, okay. we, you know, here's a misconception, maybe, I, I don't know what like level of like advanced theology our listeners have, but I know, you know, when I was uh, a fledgling convert, I thought saints were just like, uh, I thought the word saint referred to a class of like heroic people who were exemplars and, uh, and we venerate. But saint in a, the broader sense actually means anyone who's in heaven. Correct. And so... You know, I, I think we can have that reasonable hope. I mean, we, we don't know with certainty. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we rely on the church to go through a process of canonizing people to verify that their lives were indeed exemplary and even rely on the supernatural, like seeing that there are miracles involved in intercession to see that this is truly the case, that this person is in heaven. But, you know, I've had cases in my life where I've known people who were heroic and died essentially, you know, uh, a martyr's death. And I, I have quite a high degree of confidence that you know they're in heaven now watching over us i've always kind of from from an eastern perspective you know some some of these things we, we don't have all saint and all soul day souls day on on november 1st november 2nd but i do think that the romans that the romans have this real insight that there is the all saint day that we celebrate every you know all of the saints mm -hmm. and then all souls is to pray for all of those who have not made it who are not celebrated mm -hmm. the day just before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but holy but souls in purgatory. All, yeah, all of us are called to be celebrated on that All Saints Day at some point. And I think that, that process of saying that, that there is this, this hope that mm -hmm. we can have, um, that, that um, all people are, you know, that all of our relatives and all of our close uh, family are, and, and everybody that we know is, is in heaven. We can hope for that, but um, that we can also have a relationship with, with them here on earth as well. I, I think 
that there's a little bit of time that we should spend upon this sort of concept of grieving or bereavement in general. Um, and there's this common model that has become kind of ubiquitous with, uh, with grief, and it's the five stages of grief. Mm -hmm. um, and this is by a person, uh, by a, a psychologist named Kubler-Ross. Susan Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Kubler it was yeah. it was a mother-daughter team. Yeah. I forget their names. What Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is most commonly Common. associated. And then what was her mom's name? Well, oh, snap. we're going to re-edit this so that we sound brilliant here. Of course. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll we'll re-edit this in later. But yeah. um, essentially, the idea was David Kessler. Oh, that's what it says. Sorry. I think I think that's accurate. Yeah. What? Why? What? The mother daughter. Myers Briggs was a mother daughter, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's why we were. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Kubler Ross. But, stages of grief. But the concept of of the stages of grief. Um, was originally that there was this, this aspect of denial, which was kind of, mm -hmm. I'm denying that the death took place. There's then anger that the death took place. There's bargaining um, that I'll bring, you know, if I do this X, Y, and Z, then, then the person will come back or I'll, I'll have an experience with the person. Then finally, there's the fourth stage, which is depression. And then, and then the last one, which is acceptance of the death. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we had talked about before we started was that this is a very um, a very old way of looking at the bereavement mm -hmm. process because at least maybe I can speak from my perspective here I can deny that there is that the person died mm -hmm. I can be in that state of denial but I can also be in a state of depression because I know it's true at, at the same time mm -hmm. and I can be going back and forth through these and and I think the problem is, is that when you use the term stage of grief yeah right. it sounds like it's linear yeah and I I've completed it, and I've had, you know, I've, I've had conversations, not in therapy, but um, I've had conversations with people out in the world, yeah. like, well, I'm, I've finished the denial stage, I'm now in, um, I'm now in anger, you yeah. know, or I've completed this as if it were a, uh, as a video game, or, or a video right. game or something, but that it is a lot more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, and this was the one thing that I was really curious about, I don't know that we ever really fully get to acceptance. That's a profound, uh, first of all, it's mm -hmm. a bold statement, but it's also a profound thing to say. Yeah. I mean... I think we can have glimpses of acceptance. Yeah. I think that in moments of, of grace, grace, or mm -hmm. even, even relief for a moment, because mm. it's never fully gone. The grief is never, never gone. Once you experience it, it's always there, and just in different forms. Not that it always does, but that this can happen 10, 20 years after someone's death. Right. Yeah, it's good to normalize that. I think we, we were talking, you know, we were talking about this, like, compulsion we have to get over it and, and have our act together. And um, yeah, sometimes, like people week, you know. sometimes people make a big deal about how um, the latest edition of the DSM, which is like the psychiatry diagnostic manual, took out the bereavement exclusion for major depressive disorder and people make a big deal about that but you know we were actually had a nice conversation about that off mic how that's only to make room for a separate bereavement diagnosis is that right yeah so so the way in which the dsm works is because it's a abstract yeah th these are abstract diagnoses <laughs> right and things um we actually get like not we, I, I don't. They did. They didn't call me when I was in grad school for uh, the latest um, thing. But there is actually a process of kind of updating 
with the latest research and the latest philosophy about about these kind of disorders, um, there is this process of kind of re-updating things. Yeah. And so the way in which the DSM works is that there is a uh, that that we have the fifth edition, and our understanding has developed and changed, and sometimes diagnoses are removed and sometimes um, they're added right. based off of the latest kind of movements within the field. And so one that couldn't quite make it as a full diagnosis in and of itself, but what is still there and actually looks, you know, looks pretty much ready to go actually is, um, is persistent complex bereavement mm -hmm. disorder. Um, and that, I, I, I just want to clarify here that just because you might have a persistent and complex struggle with grief or bereavement does not mean that you have a psychiatric issue, mm -hmm. but it can mean that it, it, it also can be something that is, is, I think sometimes our tendency is to say, oh, well, I have a psychiatric issue when it might be just a normal bereavement process that takes a decade. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the lines between normal and abnormal are blurry in psychiatry. You know, in a depression episode, we, we, Sarah, you read from Walker Percy where he says depression mm -hmm. is a normal adaptive response to the modern world, mm -hmm. essentially. And, you know, with bereavement, um, it's a normal response to a, to a loss and to the experience of grief. But, you know, all that, that diagnosis, for me, what it points to is that, you know, there, that, might be, um, that might be a useful uh, diagnostic tool that can, that can qualify you for reimbursement when you go to see mm -hmm. a therapist to work through this issue, which is... A perfectly also a perfectly normal thing to do right to get right. to seek counseling and psychotherapy because you're dealing with bereavement I think I think that's absolutely the case um, and I think you know the other thing is is that a disorder or a diagnosis psychiatric a psychiatric or psychological diagnosis within the DSM is really to help insurance that's what it, um, right and but it is a, it is a profound thing there I think probably uh, probably grief counseling is the one area, not the only area, but one of the areas that I think has always been accepted. Um, mm -hmm. Not always, not in every situation, but very often throughout history, we kind of understand that bereavement and grief and loss is a typical place where seeking counseling can be a really positive thing. I would say, too, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but... I get so many clients that are referred to counseling by their like primary care doctor, but it's in the form of, you know, they've lost a loved one, and three months later they're still grieving, mm -hmm. and the doctor tells them, well, maybe you have depression, so you should go to counseling. Mm -hmm. And so the client comes in, she's like, I lost a loved one, and I think I'm having a hard time dealing with it, and I've been told I'm possibly depressed now, and so I need I need to get past this. And and I just part of me is just like, no, everything you described that you're experiencing is normal for what you've experienced. It's nothing abnormal. Yeah, yeah, there is nothing abnormal about that. You're so supposed I, I think, to be sad when you lose someone. Yeah. Also, though, to even like go one step further in normalizing. Uh, we also don't want to stigmatize people who feel, um, like you'll sometimes hear people say, like, I've had this experience at a funeral where I know I should have been crying, but I just felt nothing. And that is also a response to grief, this, like, blunted affect, like, mm -hmm. an inability to feel. 
and and that's also a, a, a response to the profound loss you're going through. And so like all of these responses are normal in their own right. And they all point they all point ultimately to like the heaviness of loss. Yeah. Like, like losing right. a person you care about is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if the Kubler Ross is the old and outdated version, <laughs> I I know that there are a number of, of really interesting things that have kind of come out with grief and grief counseling and grief, grief therapy and sort of the process of grief. But the best image that I've ever heard um, for it was that it is like waves in the ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's like it's like the uh, it comes and goes the tide coming mm -hmm. in. You know, and that that I mean, I've had people describe to me that like yeah. you have it, it feels like a tide of grief hits you. And you cry and kind of work through it, or you, or you, you don't have to cry mm -hmm. through grief, but you know, a lot of people do. You kind of cry and work through it, and then it will recede. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, at least it's been told to me multiple times, that it's, it's, you get hit harder and faster mm -hmm. at the beginning. And over time, those, those tides, those, those waves recede over time and mm -hmm. there's more and more gaps between them yeah they become manageable and they become manageable but they still come they still come even 10 years even 20 years later mm -hmm. that it is it is a struggle to kind of say this is a long-term long-term thing this is going to be the rest of your life mm -hmm. but there will be better days yeah and as we talk about the stages this is kind of the time i i'd like to share a c.s lewis quote from a grief observed he says, for in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles, or dare I hope I am on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down? How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss till this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. Oh. I love that image of the spiral. Going, Am I going up or am I going down? Yeah. Because some days are better than others, and you can do more things and feel more things outside of the loss, and some mm -hmm. days that's all you can feel, and it just feels like a black hole sucking you down. Yeah. And some... Some days you do feel up. Mm -hmm. You feel like, okay, this is getting better. And then maybe 30 minutes later, it's, you're going down. You're going back down. Right. Or you feel guilty for feeling up. And yeah. You remember it, you know, and you, and you start to uh, should yourself, right? How can I be happy when so-and-so is dead? Yep. Yeah. Um, I should not feel joy because of this loss. Speaking of shoulds, uh, we should talk about things you should and shouldn't say to someone grieving. Yeah. Um, this was something I, I got a little bit of in grad school from a very wise professor. And I mean, people are usually well-meaning when they try to comfort their grieving friends or family members. But, you know, well-meaning sentiment can only go so far. I think of like Job's like good-for-nothing friends when he went through his profound loss and they gave him like a bunch of cheap consolation. Um, I don't, you know, to me, they're... The list of things to not say is is uh, is so great that it's like impossible to span. Mm -hmm. But the the thing the things to say are simple and short. And so my favorite one I've ever heard from my professor in grad school to say to a grieving friend is just, 
I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm yes. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Simple, brilliant, concise. Not, I've Sincere. been through it too. I know what you, yeah. you like when someone's in the acute phase of grief, they don't need your w wisdom. They don't need your nuggets. They don't need your scripture quotes. They don't need your, I've been through, they need you, you to be present and really nothing more because that's so much. I yeah. mean, and you know, I think as, as, as you progress in your grief, people are typically open to more and more and more. Mm -hmm. But in that initial phase, I mean, what can you say to diminish the pain of someone who's who's lost a child or, you know, a spouse? Yeah. I, I think what you're getting at is that you, you can't say anything in that situation aside from, I'm so sorry, yeah. know, or, or whatever. I think every therapist should be trained as a grief therapist first, because mm -hmm. what you get to do is you learn how to just sit there with someone who yeah. is crying and in, emo in like the most acute pain yeah and be with them in that in that pain mm -hmm. and there are grief counseling techniques that yeah. i have almost all of the books i think on, <laughs> on them after after my time there but really it gets right down to it you just need to be there with that person yeah you mean you don't always have to be talking in psychotherapy that's what? a good misconception i feel like we, we kind of touched on that in the in the myths about counseling but it's worth repeating like sometimes the the intervention is is the is the therapeutic silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Allowing space to just exist between you and the client and letting the client enter into that space to not be alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, though, is, and this is probably not right at the beginning, but what I do think over time, one of the things that I think is really, but both, I mean, it is a grief counseling technique, but it is also a... Uh, I think it can be used by everybody. It's, I want to hear the stories about this person. Yeah. Like, I, I want to hear you tell me about this person. Because I think one of the things that happens is that people, when your wife or your husband or your child dies, you're thinking about that person constantly. Mm-hmm. And understandably so. You're the one going home to the empty house. You're the one walking by the, the, the empty bedroom. Mm -hmm. But nobody else is. And the world has moved on. Even though maybe they shouldn't. But the world has moved on. Mm -hmm. To say, I don't want this person to die again in everybody's lives. Out of forgetting, being forgotten. Two years, three years, five years, whatever, six months, a month. I want to tell the stories about this person to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And the, yeah, it almost makes me wonder if, like, Sheldon Van Auken, we were talking earlier about this book called A Severe Mercy that's about this Christian author, this uh, loss of his wife. I wonder if that book was his, like, therapeutic exercise to keep her alive, keep her mm -hmm. memory alive. A little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was... The way he talks about her and their life together is so beautiful and it honors her and what she meant to the people in her life so well. Yeah. And that's why in our Eastern Rites um, we have the 40-day memorial service. When uh, in my, uh, in the Maronite church where I worship um, after uh, any parishioner or even sometimes if extended family of a parishioner um, dies, we'll do a memorial mass, and then after 40 days, another one, 
to, to like keep the memory alive you know mm-hmm. it's a really beautiful thing it's like no one has forgotten and so what ends up happening is like almost like every other week we have one of these because there's you know, I mean, there's so many opportunities but it's uh it's such a good thing and and then you have the communal grieving right because you're not doing it solo it's like everyone in the parish is there with you and we're all saying the prayers and we're all remembering them and sometimes we'll even have a framed portrait of the person the picture photograph of the person up on the altar it's a good thing yeah yeah. In the Byzantine Rite, we do a, everything is bigger in the Byzantine Rite. <laughs> Texas. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> but what we do is we do it on the day of, three days after. The, the, so the day of the death, yep. if possible, three days after the death, the seventh day after the death, and then the fortieth day after the death, and then on a on a week um, on a yearly basis That's of the great. patient's mm-hmm. death. Now this gets. I mean, not everybody does this because you can imagine how complicated and difficult that would be to do this. You'd be doing, you know, a bunch of them every single day. But it is a process of praying for the dead. Then additionally, what we have in the, um, is five Saturdays a year, um, three of them during Lent and two of them during um, Easter season, the Easter season, what we call Pascha. Um, we do what we call all, you know, they're, they're all soul Saturdays um, mm-hmm. where they're just like All Saints Day, but they're the five the five days, and then also um, on a Tuesday, um, the Russian Church on a Tuesday in uh, in um, in the uh, in e- the Easter season we do that uh, All Souls again, and then we also do one in the end of October uh, based off of specific battles to commemorate the the, the fallen heroes that uh, that protected uh, protected Moscow from from anyways. From, <laughs> The invading the, horde. The invading horde. Yes, lots of, lots of deaths in the lots of lots of deaths in the empire. Um, but you know, the process I think for this is there can be a morbid fixation that does happen, and I think you know we can talk about what that is later um, in, a, in another podcast. Well, actually, in the depression podcast, we talked about that. But I think also this sort of the normativeness of death, yeah. and that praying for the dead is not just something that happens on November second. It doesn't even just happen on November second either. Yeah. But it is a normal kind of process that yeah. we all kind of enter into. Yeah, Sarah was talking about memento mori. You like that little? I love that phrase. Reminder. Um, I heard it at Benedictine College, so it's you know as old as the Benedictine order or older. Um, sorry, we're having some. There's a dog jobs. in the room. <laughs> there is a highly trained <laughs> hi, canine hi, therapy beautiful. dog yes. in the room. Well. There's an in-training canine therapy in dog training. in the room that is a so puppy. We, we and need to so ignore her a little bit more. It is the exact opposite of Memento Mori. Yeah. Um, you are all full of life, aren't you? But what is Memento Mori? I mean, Memento in, in Mori Latin. is Latin for remember your death or remember to die. Um, and it's this phrase that calls to mind that you will die. Everyone will die. And your life should be lived in such a way that when it comes time to die, you are not afraid of it. You know, there's a, there's a sense in the, in the Catholic tradition that the, the well-lived life, the holy life, makes the transition from death to eternity uh, seamless. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you'll read biographies of saints that'll say, and they were born into heaven on, you know, October 4th, you know, whatever, 1920. And it's like, 
Oh, I like that. I, you know, like death, I don't like the idea of dying, but being born into heaven, that doesn't sound so bad. Right. And, and nowhere is this clearer uh, than the case of the Blessed Mother, whose dormition uh, in the East or Assumption celebrated in the West shows a very seamless transition from this world into the next without even the, you know, according to some, without the sting of death. Uh, so, yeah, it need not, it, it, it's scary, but, you know, we have this example to follow that it actually need not be. In fact, mm -hmm. I was, I was talking to the gang earlier about this, uh, Orthodox monastery, uh, the entrance of the monastery has an inscription that reads, um, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die, <laughs> which is tapping into this Christian um, this Christian idea of death to self, mm -hmm. like Christ is always telling, you know, we have to die to ourselves, you know, take up your cross. If you die to yourself in this life, then you're not going to experience the permanent death in the next. You're going to experience the true life, life mm -hmm. everlasting. Yeah. So, so, but, 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 you can also, I, I think the process of mourning Mm -hmm. the death itself is also necessary. And I think this is Absolutely. something that is not always discussed within spirituality. Mm -hmm. Right. But yeah. that um, that we also must mourn our own... Um, our own death while we still live our life. Yeah, and the deaths of others, right? It's not We don't want to cheapen it. We don't want right. to cheapen it or over-spiritualize. You know? And then the scriptures are also replete with examples of you know, um, biblical biblical figures mourning deaths. I mean, this isn't something that you just say, oh, yeah, yeah, they're never, It's fine. They're oh, never, they had a lovely life. We're going to have a celebration of life party. We're going to have a potluck. All the church ladies are going to bring their jello dishes. Yeah. There's so the, much jello. The hope, the, the, hope for, the hope for heaven does not eliminate the profound loss of death, mm -hmm. the, the right. loss that comes with death. A and that I must mourn my, from those quotes, remember your death, um, or die before you die, yeah. or else you're going to die, or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is. But both of those, I think we need to mourn our own death to self while we're there. That, oh, that, man. I mean, there is a certain level of, I don't always want to be this, this, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a spiritual person all the time. No. And I think I have to mourn that to a certain extent, I think, or, or else you'll fall into despondency. Mourn the things yeah. of this world. Mourn the mourn them and 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 have them at the forefront that, that you are mourning this, mm -hmm. not not just simply say I'm I'm okay, I'm fine. Well, sort of like don't kid yourself. Yeah. You know, I was having a conversation recently with a friend about detachment as a Christian virtue, and um, a little bit over my head because this guy's a lot smarter than me. But um, I, you know, oh stop. There's a sense in which you need to. <laughs> Uh, not this one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> There's a sense in which you do need to live uh, this detached life, right? Like the like this living, um, kind of living in this eternal present without you know being poor of spirit and without being tied down, you know, tied down to this world that will pass away. But there's also a sense in which, like, let's not kid ourselves. That's hard to do. Right. It's like <laughs> right. minimalism. Yeah. It's like, sure, you could not have a couch and just mm -hmm. have, like, very basic things. But it's nice to have a couch. It's nice to have a nice couch. To have things that make life comfortable. Well, and I'm a big f You know, for all my political leanings that I shouldn't let the viewers know about, I'm a big fan of stuff. Like, I still can't... 
I can't get I can't give up my book collection. Right. Um, yes. I can't give up my <laughs> weird sentimentals. Like I'm, a, you know, I'm attached. I'm attached. Yeah. And that's just material things. Like, not to mention people, right? friends, and family. Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, there is a patristic tradition of saying you must forget about your past. You must, you know, forget about the people who are closest to you. I don't know that that is always the most healthy thing. Yeah. Well, that, it needs to be qualified. You need to yeah. understand what you mean by that, right? Yeah. Because Jesus, well, you were, this is supposed to be Sarah's line, but what did Jesus do when his buddy Lazarus died? What did he, say? he said, no big deal. He said, no big deal. He's probably in heaven. It's not a big deal. It's, he's fine. He's fine. He said, the Bible says, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And one of the most profound, I think. It demonstrates the pain that God, who became man, has these deep feelings and deep connections and deep love for his friends, for those he is close to. Like, his friend was dead. Like, and if anyone knew, if anyone knew what the ultimate outcome was going to be, it's Jesus. Right, and he still wept. wept. And the Bible doesn't, like, give this addendum, mm -hmm. oh, and it was only for a short time. Like, there is that tradition, like, even in, like, you know, there's this, like, a tradition, like, Augustine, like, kind of, like, he wept a little bit when his mom died, but, like, not that much. Like, I don't right, really... Right, like, like, well, that's stoicism with, you know... See, I'm church. not a big fan of that. Sorry to my friend who was talking about detachment, the Augustinian friend who was talking about detachment, but I'm not a big fan of that. Um, because I see in my, in mental health counseling how, you know, people can, um, can impose those, uh, ideals onto themselves. And that's, first of all, hard to do. And second of all, it just doesn't seem human because the experience of loss is accompanied by extended bereavement, extended mourning, mm -hmm. right? That's normative. And should we discourage that? I don't think so. Yeah. So I, one thing that I did want to kind of say here at the end, and I'm curious your guys' thoughts on it, when, if, if grief is a natural process, if grief is a typical process, and I think, honestly, most people bereave without professional help, and, and, they, and they move through it That's right. pretty successfully, even though it is the common trauma that we have, mm -hmm. the, 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 the one common trauma that all of us will probably experience. Where is the line between... A typical common process and when someone should should seek professional help because I have my own sure. views on it but I want to hear your guys first well if if you look at anything right it's it's okay to grieve it's okay to mourn your life is going to change in some ways but I think that it becomes more of an issue and starts to tend to to go into depressive symptoms when you're no longer able to hold a job, when you're no longer to able to hold and sustain any kind of relationship mm -hmm. because you're completely isolating yourself for prolonged periods of time. And, and so you have all these different areas of your life that are being affected, right? Yeah. You're no longer taking care of yourself physically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. You know, um, when that relationship that has now ended because of death mm -hmm. is your entire world. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And your entire focus. And um, and it's okay for that to be the case for a certain period of time. It's okay to not be able to go into work some days. Mm -hmm. it's, it's okay not to, you know, want to see people. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case for a prolonged period of time, 
then you can't function anymore. Your level and quality of life has severely gone down, mm -hmm. you know, and, and some people, you know, lose, start losing their houses or get divorced or things, right. you know, because they can't afford it, because they're not working or whatever the causes is. So I think, I think that's when it kind of gets into the realm of like, okay, you know, this might be even more depression-like because as we know with the brain, you know, our thoughts can change our brain chemistry. Yeah. Okay, so if we're so focused on the grief for so long, it can change the brain chemistry to almost go into a depressive episode. Yeah, yeah. From uh, you know th th that question, uh, questions like that, you can always bring us back to episode one, our philosophy of healing, our yeah. philosophy mm -hmm. of health. And so, uh, you know, for for me, thinking about this like teleological view of man. Um, Define what teleological uh, means. You know, ordered to end states or, um, you know, d directed to goals. If you're, if you're meant as a human being to pursue certain goods, like the goods of friendship, you know, the goods of worship, the goods of um, serving the community, if anything impedes you from pursuing or achieving those goods, then that's impeding your overall functioning. And that's a sign of disorder. That's a sign of ill health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if the grief process um, extends over time to a degree that it impedes your ability to pursue other goods, like um, the ones just mentioned, like truly human goods that can perfect you and make you the sort of person you were meant to be and live the life that you're supposed to live, then you need you, you, there's some block. And then you might need a little bit of help to remove that block like we always say here at Mount Tabor, kind of remove that, um, get a little bit of help here so that, you know, from the, the squeegee, so <laughs> that the Holy Spirit can do the rest, right? <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I would, you know, evaluate your life that way. Like, is this, is this holding me back from the things that will ultimately fulfill me? And if it is, then, yeah, I would say seek help. Yeah. And real quick, I want to go back to... A point, Chris, that you brought up in regards to things you should or shouldn't say, because we kind of touched on that and just kind of left it at, okay, just say, you know, Well, that was sort of my sorry. favorite example. It's not yeah. the only one. But it's not the only one, but I, I feel like we only gave one example of it, and sure. so I kind of just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, please do. Um, in regards to things, common things I think people say to people that are not helpful at all, which is, one, asking them how their day is. Oh, yes. How are you today? Like, that is one of the least light questions that a person is grieving. Mm -hmm. You know, they just kind of want to scream back at the other person, like, well, I'm awful, how are you? Well, and you're supposed to well, say, fine, thank you. Right, and, or, and, it, and it almost seems like to them they're not allowed to be struggling. They're not mm -hmm. allowed to be not okay. Right. You know, and so, and also, they're up and down. So when somebody asks them how the, their day is, it's like, okay, do you want the 12 different emo emotions I've been feeling yeah. Yeah. up and down, spiraling all today? And the second one is even years later, people, you know, they'll bring somebody up and they're like, oh, you're still struggling with that? Yeah. Like... Mm. In a shaming tone. In, in a shaming tone or they don't want to bring it up, you know, because mm. there's... The person's supposed to be over. They don't want to trigger it. Mm -hmm. And one of the most helpful things is I even heard a person say, at, after the death of their child, 
that for a while a friend would text them every day and then for like the first year and then after that it was like once a month mm -hmm. and then as time went on it was like every year on the anniversary just to acknowledge it yeah. just for, for it to be okay that hey I'm still thinking about it too it's okay if you're still not okay that's beautiful yeah. I like that that that's is good. a good friend yeah. Although, again, that, that might not be for everyone. It's right. Like case by case. Sure. No, no, absolutely. But one of my big, what, what, what your comment made me think of is one of the things that I got reamed in my first supervision um, was that I would always get off the phone. So we would call all of the family members after a death at the hospice. And I would always say, have a great day mm. or, you know, uh, whatever at the end uh, of the phone call. Yeah. That is the worst thing to tell someone in a state of grief. Yeah. Because they're not going to have a great day. No. They're not. They're not. No. And I think, I think getting past that conversation is, or getting past that statement in um, our, 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 our vocabulary, I think, yeah. is really necessary. So mm -hmm. what they always said was, just say, take care. Yeah, take care. Um, and that's, I mean, literally now, Yeah. But with any phone call, I'll say take care. Yeah, but, you know, Shakespeare says custom is a tyrant. Yeah. And, you know, the, have a great day is, like, what we've all been, like, we've all got that, like, Pavlov have a great day. Ha have conditioning a great day. that, like, okay, phone call over, have a great day, click, like. Right, no, I mean. Yeah, and and, and I'm guilty of it, too. I know I, I, I've hung up the phone and be like, why did you just say why that? Why did you just say that? <laughs> yeah. Like, they're not yeah. going to have a great day, yeah. no matter yeah. what. Yeah. Uh, and and so. we all make mistakes in those situations. We, we never got to, something to, to do that. Yeah, we never got to your answer to the question of when when does yeah. bereavement become a, a reason for clinical referral. I clinical referral, I think, is, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's what we would say, but um, when you would seek counsel. Um, they're experts by now. This is like yeah, yeah, I'm like sorry. 13 or something. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> um, so the first thing that I would say is the first month is probably not the best time to make that assessment. Yeah. If things are really in a state where that complete dysfunction in, in every possible way, um, after the first month, then I think absolutely. But the first month is you're you're not. I, I mean, the way the way I remember talking about it was like you're literally just trying to get food on the table. You're not in a state of you know functioning. Functioning. So mm -hmm. you know, coming in, doing scheduling a therapy session to then come in, it might be way too much for the first month. Um, if the, the other thing that I, I and so I'm, I'm actually just going to kind of do some check-ins. Maybe in the first month it is actually the best time, but for, depending on the person. But I would, I would just say maybe that assessment's not possible within the first month. The other thing that I would say is grief builds on grief, which builds on grief. So a death loss after a death loss after a death loss can be something mm -hmm. that is very, very common. Mm -hmm. And it might be, so one of the things that we do and that I've done in the past with um, is is uh, draw a, a death line, which is a really, really quite profound thing to, to say, is draw a line, like a timeline, and from that say, okay, well, the first death that I experienced was my grandfather. The next death that I experienced was my grandmother. That about, you know, it kind of goes all the way down through their entire life. And it's like, if death is this kind of thing that builds over time and grief builds over time, and so you might have lost a lot of very close people, and then 
a minor, what would be kind of considered a minor loss. Your cat. And Sarah's putting that in, in quotes, mm -hmm. you know, really just puts you to a point where people are like, well, it was only X, Y, right, or Z. I don't know it why I'm reacting deal. like yeah. this, right? It's like, well, you're actually mourning and grieving and bereaving in oh, a state of bereavement for all of these other yeah. losses. Or, or like one of your last family members. Yeah. Right? Or I've definitely had clients that in the last six months of their life, they've lost both parents, they've yeah. lost a sibling, they lost three, four, five people that they're close to. Absolutely. Both parents yeah. is, a, is a huge one. You feel like an orphan in this world. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to say also as Catholics, um, I've known people who have really looked to Mary and Joseph um, for help during, during uh, the loss of family. And so I'll say that, you know, like, there's a sense in which, you know, you're able to have this spiritual adoption. So you're never an orphan. No, no one is ever really an orphan in this world. But you can feel like one when you're, when you've lost your family. Absolutely. Um, it looks like we're kind of at time, Deacon. I'm wondering if maybe I can just end with, a, you know, just a short scripture for our Protestant listeners out there. <laughs> um, I'll allow it. Um, the, the Bible has so much to offer us um, really on grief and loss so here so here are two short ones I'm from Psalm 34 verse 18 the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit mm. and from the book of Revelation 20, chapter 21 he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And that's a beautiful one to end on. That is the Catholic Psyche Podcast for tonight. Uh, you all have a lovely All Saints and All Souls Day. Take care. Be Take care. well. Bye.